We are going to start in Romans 1, and we'll just see how far we get. Four verses. No, we're going to start in Romans 1, and and Lord willing, we're going to get through the whole chapter. It's not going to be the most exhaustive trip you've ever taken through Romans 1, but I can't figure out where to divide this chapter up. So we're going to take a look at the whole thing, and we're going to take it in chunks. So we're going to start in verses 1 through 7. Before, the, before we do that, um, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, again, we come to you and ask that you would bless our time in your word this evening, and that you would bless the proclamation of it and the public reading of it and the hearing of it, and that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers also, as you have instructed us. And we pray that we would be faithful followers of you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans 1, if you're there already, we're going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, having been separated to the good news of God, which he announced beforehand through his prophets in holy writings, concerning his son, who has come of the seed of David, according to the flesh, who is marked out as the son of God in power, according to the spirit of sanctification, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship, for obedience of faith among the nations, in behalf of his name, among whom are also you, the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called holy ones, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We pause there because I want to give proper attention to Paul's introduction to this letter because it's not just a salutation or a greeting. It's a setup for the rest of the letter. Verses 1 through 7 are really the main introduction to the letter that Paul writes to the believers, the, the called ones in Rome. And as you'll notice, since this book is perhaps the clearest articulation and explanation of the gospel that we have written in the scriptures... It seems that Paul is coming out of the gate to the Romans with his mission statement or with his thesis statement for the letter. If you're familiar with the rest of this letter, you may see that this introduction is effectively a Cliff Notes 30,000 foot view of what he's going to address throughout the rest of his through the rest of his letter. I call it a letter. We call it a book typically. It was a it was just a, a letter written to a group of people. In, in just a few short verses, in 1 through 7, here's, here's some of what you can find. You've got the credentials of Paul, where he got them, the person Jesus, where Jesus came from, according to the flesh, what right Jesus has to give the apostles authority, and a number of other things. Notice the flow of Paul's opening statement. I've been separated for the good news of God, which was announced beforehand by prophets in the scriptures. And it all was about God's son, who came from David. 
And that Son has been marked out as the Son of God by the Spirit of sanctification, by the means of resurrection. Jesus Christ, from whom we got our apostleship, for the purpose of the obedience of faith among the nations for his name, including you all, the called of Jesus Christ, all of you in Rome, beloved of God, called holy ones, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a lot to pack into really one sentence. So one thing I've found is helpful to do with Paul's sentences, especially when they're progressively structured like this, so moving from, um, from premise to point A, B, C to Z and so on, is to look at them forwards and then to look at them backwards and then go back and look at them forwards again. So let's, let's look at it backwards for a moment and see if we can follow his thinking a little bit better. Here it is backwards. Grace and peace to you who are called holy, beloved of God in Rome. You all, called of Jesus and on his behalf, excuse me, called of Jesus and on behalf of his name, are to be obedient by faith among the nations, says I, the apostle. From where did you get your authority, Paul? Jesus Christ, our Lord, was resurrected by the Spirit. And that resurrection by the Spirit is what marked him out as, or in other words, what positively identified him as the Son of God in power. This same Son was to come from David according to the flesh, and all this was announced beforehand by the prophets as good news from God, or announced by God through the prophets and recorded in the scriptures. that kind of help make the forward flow of it make a little more sense? What he means is that the good news was announced long before the coming of the Messiah. This is not a new teaching from Paul. I think he's intentionally making that clear. The opposite, rather, is true. He's setting the groundwork for later saying that Jesus is the point and the fulfillment of all those prophecies. He's proving it. How? by pointing back at the indicators of, this, of, of the Messiah, the things that were prophesied about whoever this person was going to be, what he was going to do, what he would be like, and so on. The first of which, chronologically speaking, and the most prevalent throughout the Old Testament, is that the Messiah is the killer of death. The first and primary indicator of who the Messiah would be is from Genesis 3, that he would reverse the curse. The curse was death. You remember? In the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. For the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Or dying, you die. So this is not a new teaching from Paul, which he received from Christ, and what we call the Old Testament is good news. Paul's giving a very clear, albeit very concise, explanation of who Jesus is and why he has authority. Because he's going to spend the rest of his letter explicating and glorying in what Christ has done for sinful humankind and the effects of his work throughout the ages, past, in his time, present, and now our time, future, and from our perspective, future throughout all the ages. 
So Paul continues in verse 8 that he glories in the church at Rome because, notice what he says, because their faith is spoken of, not just spoken of, it's proclaimed, it's shouted out throughout the world. That's a fantastic commendation, is it not? Wouldn't you love to receive a commendation like that about our church? Here's what's what's really cool. That's exactly what verse 5 was encouraging. The obedience of faith among all the nations in behalf of his name. Verse 6, you also are a part of this church at Rome. Verse 8, great job doing this. I thank God for you because of this. There is one command in all the preceding verses, in 1 through 7, and it's a a somewhat all-inclusive command. Be obedient by faith among the nations. And Paul tells them, I thank my God for you because you're being obedient in this. You're being obedient in being obedient. Which, I must add, is the same responsibility that Israel had before Christ came, before the Messiah was on the earth. It was the same command. It's always been the same command. The command of God does not change. By faith, it's four words. I can sum up the whole law in four words. By faith, obey me. It's almost like Solomon was on to something when he said in Ecclesiastes 12:11, I believe. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of mankind. By faith, obey God. In verses 9 and 10, Paul says he prays for this church for what? For their continued obedience? Let's read it, 9 and 10. For God is my witness, whom I serve in my spirit, in the good news of his Son. How unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, imploring, if by any means, now, at length, I may have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, that you may be established. And verse 12 Yes. Oh, okay, I see. I said 9 and 10, and here we are reading through 12. We're going to read through 12. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift that you may be established, and that is, that I may be comforted together among you through faith in one another, both yours and mine. This is perhaps the most vigorously we see Paul speaking about his prayers of another person or group of people. And his prayer is that he can come to them for the purpose of imparting a spiritual gift so that the church may be established. Okay, I totally understand what that means. Okay, so what does that mean? What is this about being established? Is this church in Rome not an established church? Well, of course it is. That's how he can write to the called in Rome. It's not an open letter to the city. So what does Paul mean here? He gives the answer in verse 12. We read it already. 
when he says, and that, referring to the being established part, that is that they may be mutually comforted. In part, what it is to be established with, or even as a local church, is to be comforted through the faith in the promises of God and faith in the work of his Son, mentioned in Paul's opening. Of those around you, and, and that those around you, let me, let me rephrase this. What was mentioned in Paul's opening is expected of everyone, and it has to do with this here. Of those around you, and, those, and that those around you be comforted by your faith. So, you comfort others with your faith, and others should be comforted by your faith, and you should be comforted by others' faith. The faith is, is a mutually comforting thing for the local church gathered. See why he opened with what he did? Because it's what we and the whole creation have been patiently wait, awaiting with eager expectation. In other words, one of the ways members are established in a church is by comforting and encouraging one another with the truth of Jesus Christ. Pretty simple, really, but this truth has a pretty stark contrast coming up. In verse 13, we read that he was thus far prevented from going to them, to the, the called in Rome, but is under obligation to the people at Rome, both Greeks and foreigners, to wise and to thoughtless or to foolish. What obligation does he have to them? Well, he states it in verse 15. I am under obligation to all of you, and that obligation is why I am eager to do what? Proclaim the good news. The good news referenced in the first seven verses. His whole motivation for wanting to go there is to preach to them the good news that he began with. Verse 16, he's not ashamed of this good news. Why? This good news that he longs to preach is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it, Jew first and also Greek. For the righteousness of God in it, in the, in the good news, is revealed in what? In that for which he commended them earlier. Remember the whole mutual encouragement by others' faith thing? This is what that is. The righteousness of God in the gospel is revealed from one faith to another by the righteous living obediently by faith. Doing what was commanded in verses 5 and 6. Is your faith, this is a question for you, is your faith encouraged by your righteous brothers and sisters living out their faith? I hope so. Mine is. And I, this is, this is extra biblical, so take it with a grain of salt, but I, I think uh, that this is why the stories of Christian martyrs are so gripping. Is because as, as much as we would like to avoid it, it's captivating. 
And it's, it spurs me on, it spurs us on to love and good works, seeing people live out their faith like that, to the extreme, as it were. I know that the whole Sunday recharge slash reset thing for the week gets a really bad reputation, oftentimes rightly, but there is something to being here physically present with others who have been changed by the power of God to salvation. You all who believe. I don't get that at work. I don't get that at the store. I don't get that wherever else. I don't get that anywhere else. I get it here. And that's how, that's how it was designed. I get it here at this local embassy of the heavens among you other ambassadors of Christ who are living by faith. This is why our faith is not just a faith. It's not a philosophy. Christianity is not a philosophy Christianity is not only a religion. It's not, only, it's not a set of values like, like the straw man that's often set up likes to say. It's an explanation, the only wholly correct explanation of reality itself. What Paul lays out in the first seven verses is an explanation of the reality in which we live. Jesus is the Son of God who came from David and who was resurrected from the dead, and we who believe share in that by faith in his name. If, ver- if, if, if the first seven verses are true, what follows through the next 16 chapters, we'd better pay attention to, because what Paul lays out in the first seven verses aren't reality-altering, they are reality. And I want to demonstrate that as we go along. Read with me verses 17 to the end, and I'll make a few points about it. I know you're you're familiar with these verses, but I want to read them aloud as God intended. 17, beginning in 17. For the righteousness of God in it is revealed from faith to faith. According as it has been written, and the righteous one will live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven on all impiety and unrighteousness of men, holding down the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known of God is revealed among them, for God revealed it to them. For the invisible things of him... From the creation of the world, by the things made, being understood, are plainly seen, both his eternal power and Godhead, to their being inexcusable. Because having known God, they did not glorify him as God, nor gave thanks, but were made vain in their reasonings. And their unintelligent heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they were made fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the likeness of an image of corruptible man and of birds and of uh, quadruped beasts and of reptiles. For this reason, also, God gave them up 
in the desires of their hearts to uncleanness, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who changed the truth of God into the lie and honored and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Because of this, God gave them up to dishonorable affections. For even their females changed the natural use into that against nature. And in like manner also the males, having left the natural use of the female, burned in their longing toward one another. Males with males working shame, and the repayment of their error that was fit in themselves receiving. And according as they did not approve of having God in knowledge, God gave them up to a disapproved mind to do the things not seemly, having been filled with all unrighteousness, whoredom, wickedness, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil dispositions, whisperers, evil speakers, God-haters, insulting, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, unintelligent, faithless, without natural affection, implacable, unmerciful, who the righteous judgment of God, having known that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do them, but also have delight with those practicing them. If what Paul laid out in 1 through 7 is is a short explanation of reality and how we should respond to it properly, what is this next section? This next section is what happens when a person denies that reality and continues suppressing it. This is what happens when one rejects the claims of God about the universe and about the world in which we live, which inherently and necessarily requires knees bent to Christ. If the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith in the obedience of his people, what about the wrath of God? The wrath of God is revealed not by us, important distinction, not by us, but from heaven on all impiety and unrighteousness of men who are holding down the truth, suppressing the truth, holding its head under the water so that it dies. Why are they holding it down? Because, verse 19, they know God and therefore know to honor him, and they don't. They are believing the original lie of Satan. Death, you say? We can beat that. They do not glorify him as God, nor did they give thanks. But, but what? They were made vain in their thinking, and their already foolish or stupid hearts were darkened. Were made vain by what? Or by whom? We will get to that. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they were made fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God into, I'm paraphrasing, nonsense. Animals, birds, beasts, people. 
And there's a linchpin in this section that I don't want us to miss. That linchpin is in verse 26. You see it? Where it says, because of this, God gave them up to dishonorable affections. What is the this? Well, I think that it refers back to the genesis of Paul's whole reason for this section that he's writing. The reason that these people are given over is because they are holding down the truth in unrighteousness. And it is for that reason that God gives them over to everything in the next section. They are wickedly choosing to dwell in the desert, in the realm of death, rather than living in the land of the living. Okay, by what means? By suppressing and trying to kill the truth. The truth, which, from verses 1 through 7, is the good news. The focal point of which is Jesus Christ. Paul talks about this later where he says, of Christ, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. See, here's one thing we need to understand is that we were created, human beings were created with purposes and for reasons. And sin, when it came into the world through Adam, we read in, in chapter 5, I'm telling you, Romans gives an answer for just about everything. When sin came into the world through Adam, it distorted, our, it, it distorted the view of humankind, our ability to, to think and to act rightly because we were infected with sin. We were blind, at least in part, to the reasons and purposes for which we were created. This is, I think, what the healing of the blind spiritually symbolizes. The effects of sin, blindness, cause us to not be able to see God rightly. And only God, through the work of Christ, can help us see reality as God intends it, intended it from the beginning in the garden. Man is never completely in the dark, however. See Acts 17, 27 through 28. We won't flip over there, but even the pagans were groping in the darkness but still had the blinders on. And Paul explained reality to them. He said, let me tell you about the one whom you call the unknown God. Let me tell you who that is. To live righteously in light of the good news that Paul is explaining is to live in the world as we were created to. That's only possible through the work of Jesus Christ. It's not possible apart from him. To live in the reality of the light of God is what it is. The good news of Jesus Christ is that the Messiah has come. That's what the good news is. According to Paul in those first seven verses, the good news is that the Messiah is here and it's Jesus Christ. The implication of the good news is that God, not the implication, an implication, an implication of the good news is that God will never give you over to this, to your sin, to your suppression of the truth, to a person's suppression of the truth, if one abides in him. 
the worst earthly thing that God can do for an unrepentant person is to give them everything that they want. And the judgment is so severe that verse 32 says that even though they know that those who practice such things deserve to die, they give approval, is what a lot of your translations probably say. It could also be said, they also have delight with those practicing them. They know they're going to die. They know that these actions deserve death. But this is what it means to be given over. You're done. Rather, God is done with you. And he causes you to be consumed with the, with the clouded and, in a way, fake reality of sin. It only leads to death. But this was the original lie of Satan. And this is why they know they're going to die but can't get out of it. Because the original lie was death? We can beat that. No, you will not surely die. To live in the reality of Christ is Jesus. I'm, I'm sorry, of, of Christ Jesus is life. So to you, brothers and sisters, when people see your faithful obedience, they should see the righteousness of God. When you see the suppression of truth, you should think judgment is happening. Judgment is beginning to happen. Judgment is well on its way. Start prayerfully trying to snatch from the furnace when you see suppression of truth. Paul's first example of, of being given over in judgment is homosexuality. Because of this, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. The phrasing is, their females changed the natural use into that against nature. And the men, having left the natural use of the female, burned in their longing toward one another, working shame, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. What is the due penalty? Illness? Disease? Sure, maybe. That's part of it. But the severest due penalty is being given over to one's sin. And being given over to unnatural desire, which is more truth suppression. And we, we kind of have, have a, a microcosmic look at this in church discipline, where with the unrepentant sinner... We kick him out. There's, there's the phrase that you're familiar with, deliver this man over to Satan for the destruction of the body. With the hope that he it repents and comes back. When the church does it, when the church properly follows church discipline with an unrepentant sinner, there is a chance for restoration of that individual. When God does it, based on this text... It seems like that's it. The church bears the keys to the kingdom. What's bound on earth will be bound in heaven. What's loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's church discipline. And we bear that for the hopes of bringing that person back into the fold. When God does it, it's permanent. You are given over. At least that's all that I can 
see based on this passage. The due penalty is being given over to unnatural desire, which is more, even more truth suppression. And it seems that the further into judgment one is while on this earth, the more unnatural oriented they become, the further from reality they go. To be discreet, just look at the culture around you. Do you see how Paul got here from his opening? The good news is that the believer can be redeemed to be able to reflect the righteousness of God among the nations. The Messiah has come. It is Jesus. Here is what that means for you. The good news is that the Messiah came. The what it means for you is kind of takes a back seat. Part of the original creation mandate is people reflecting the righteousness of God on earth. That's part of the original creation mandate. That's what you're supposed to do. That's what humans are literally designed to do, is be imagers of God on earth, reflectors of his glory to, them, to those around them. So moving back to an Edenic view of humanity. The alternative is to suppress the truth of the good news and of the law of God on the heart, so they're, they're suppressing two things, the good news and they're suppressing the law of God with, and the conscience which either accuses or excuses them until the point when God leaves that person innocent. Embrace the Son before God leaves you. Repent while it is still called today. We talk about power over sin. The power over sin that we have is now we will not be given over to it. We no longer drown the truth. Rather, we see it and proclaim it. Power over sin is being able to see the light of Christ and his work and to be able to love it and share it and rejoice in it rather than trying to suppress it and keep it down. And the local gathering of the church together has a faith-to-faith encouragement that helps I'm sorry, that that helps to keep the believer doing verse 17. The righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith because of the good news that Paul began with. The option besides being obedient is being given over to sin. News is simply the public declaration of something happening in real life. That's what news is. It's a declaration of real life to people, to public. So, good news is a declaration of reality that is good. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. We just got out of this season. We don't, we don't ever get out of that season as Christians. That season just continues on throughout the year, I hope. But we just had a significant in, uh, uh, focus on on the the birth of the Messiah. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all people. It's a declaration of reality, and it's stupid to suppress it. I'm using that word intentionally. It is the definition of foolish. The good news is that the Messiah came. The curse reverser came. Jesus, that Messiah, beat death. That means he also defeats everything that brings death. The reality is a good one. The news is good news. 
and one's response to it has severe implications. Paul goes through many of them, many of them in his letter. Nothing can beat Christ, and if we're in him, nothing will conquer us either. Period. May we be known as a people of righteousness and faith. Verse, verses 1 through 17 show us one kingdom, and 18 through 32 show us another. If it seems, I, I, had, I have to say this because if it seems like I've dealt too lightly with one of the bleakest passages in Scripture, it's not because I'm avoiding it. Um, it is indeed an ugly and terrifying thing to read of God doing. Paul is explaining the truth of the reality of Christ that he lays out in the first seven verses. And the rest of the book is going to focus on two responses and two sets of implications for those responses. What do you do if you embrace Christ as the Messiah, as the curse reverser, and what happens if you're a truth suppressor who denies that? Which one? The first, the first roughly half of this book is dealing with the former, beginning here in chapter 1. We are introducing a character, the truth suppressor, who's given over. The second half is dealing with the people mentioned, the people he's greeting in, in 1 through 7. Sharing the good news could simply be called explaining reality and telling all men everywhere to repent. Christ has come. Christ is king. You will bend the knee either today in this life or tomorrow in the next, but you will bend the knee. Christ is king. Death is put to death, and we are to be obedient light bearers, knowing that God's patience exists so that people can repent. God is patient so that people can repent. Were it not for his patience, we would all be gone. As Paul opened the letter, so he closed it. In like manner, he closed it. And I'm going to close tonight by reading the last four verses of chapter 16. Well, you know what? Let me... Let me refresh our minds with 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, having been separated to the good news of God, which he announced beforehand through his prophets in holy writings concerning his son, who has come of the seed of David according to the flesh, who is marked out as the Son of God in power according to the spirit of sanctification by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom... We received grace and apostleship for obedience of faith among the nations in behalf of his name, among whom are also you, the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called holy ones, grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the last four verses of chapter 16. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And to him who is able to establish you according to my good news and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the secret, having been kept secret in the times of the ages, and now having been revealed, 
also through prophetic writings, according to a command of the perpetual God, having been made known to all the nations for obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, to him be glory for all ages. Amen. Father God, we are so grateful for the gift of your Son, and I pray that those here tonight and those who may be listening elsewhere would not suppress the truth about you or the truth about your Son. And we're so grateful for the fact that Jesus did come, as we read in Romans, to die for the Jew first and also for the Greek, and that we can be a part of your redemptive plan in history. And we're grateful for the local church. I'm grateful for this church, Redbridge. And I pray that we would be diligent to be mutually encouraging with our faith that we have in you and from you. And we ask that you would bless your word to our hearts and that we would be faithful doers of your word all of our days until our seed is placed in the ground. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please take your hymn book and open it up to number 730. Now, you may have a little difficulty finding that because it's about 20 pages or so after the last hymn. But if you just keep turning the pages, you will see that there, the numbers continue into some uh, spoken uh, things, and including spoken benedictions. So 730 is a benediction. Actually, we just heard a benediction at the end of uh, Romans. Uh, so we'll, we'll have a, a second benediction here. Uh, 730, so let's recite this together. This is from Numbers 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And then let's go to before that, uh, 728. Let's read that. Ready? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God bless you. Have a great week.